0: Let's pray together, please. Our merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be able to open up your God-breathed Word and to hear your voice. May we receive its truth with faith and love, laid up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name, we ask, Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter twenty-three. Luke twenty-three. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12 is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. Luke 23, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, received, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. May God bless the reading of his holy word. This morning I want to do four things. I want to talk about first the character of Satan's disciples, the character of Satan's disciples, and then we'll look at the very clear division in our passage, Jesus before Pilate and then Jesus before Herod, and then I want to make some applications of this great passage to us. First, the character of Satan's disciples. Every human being on earth, including everyone in this room, has a certain character to them. Whenever people apply to rent an apartment uh, or apply for a job, owners and employers will often ask for what? They want character references. And why do they want character references from someone other than the person because the scripture says in proverbs 27:21 a man is valued by what others say of him what is a person's character what are they like do they have integrity uh, do they keep their word are their promises worth anything do they blame others when they sin or do wrong or mess up or do they take responsibility for themselves will they do the right thing even if it costs them something will they do the right thing if it costs them money Will they tell the truth when it's hard to do so? Will they stand for what is righteous and true even if they have to stand alone? Or even if everybody in their life that they thought was on their side turns on them? Will they still stand for what is true and right? Is their commitment to righteousness and truth steadfast and unwavering? Or can they easily be led astray? Is their love for God based on how well things are going in their life today? Or do they love God even when the dark providences? Happen and when heartache comes into their life. Has this person's character ever really been tested by any trials in their life? Or has everything been pretty smooth so far? You see, anyone can appear to be godly, anyone can appear to be strong. They can appear to have integrity until they're tested. In Proverbs 24:10, the scripture says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now you can look strong until the day of adversity and no one will know it but when the day of adversity happens and you fail, you faint in that day then it's known that your strength was weak. One of the most important and often neglected concepts of scripture that we have to bear in mind is this. Please hear me if you're a note taker, write this little phrase down. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. We take on the attributes of what we worship. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, and Moses was on on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, the people demanded that Aaron make them a golden calf, a cow, to worship. And for the rest of Israel's history, and all the way through, even to the Apostolic Proclamation, remember Stephen, in his one long sermon in Acts chapter 7, says to his hearers, you stiff-necked people, God calls his people, his rebellious people, stiff-necked And that term is used over and over in the Old Testament. It means stubborn, stiff-necked, unable to be led anywhere. A stiff-necked cow is a cow that won't follow you. And you can tie a rope around a cow's neck and you can try your best to pull it. But if it is stiff-necked, it's not going to go anywhere. If it's stiff-necked, it's not going to follow you. God gave Israel the attribute of a worthless cow for the rest of its history. Because they became like what they worshipped. The same is true with every person in this room and everybody that you know. What are we like? It's real easy. We're like whatever we worship. Whatever's most important to us, that's what we become like. Listen to God's word. Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Those who serve idols, whatever form those idols take, are blind, deaf, and dumb. Unable to move or be moved. Biblically speaking, in the the world, the contrast is always this, between worshipers of Christ and worshipers of demons. Did you know that in Scripture? If you don't know Christ, you're a worshiper of Satan. You're a worshiper of demons. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, no Gentile is going to admit, yeah, we're demon worshipers. No evolutionist would ever admit that they worship demons, and they would scoff at the very thought, we don't even believe that they exist. You see, the majority of Satan's disciples, they don't know that they're Satan's disciples. They don't know that they're his disciples. Those who are in opposition to Christ, in opposition to the gospel, to the sovereign God's right to rule his universe, those who are opposed to that, we're told in scripture, they're the captives of Satan whether they know it or not. Scripture calls upon the servants of the Lord to engage in this. In 2nd 2 Timothy 2:25, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, in opposition to what? To the truth, to the gospel, to God's word, to righteousness correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. In this passage before us here, there are a lot of Satan's captives doing his will, doing the devil's will. And boy, do all of them have the attributes of Satan. All of them have the attributes of their father, the devil, They have the attributes of what they worship. You know what that main attribute is? Lying. These people are liars. Satan is a liar. We are perhaps the most like Satan when we lie. Think of how simple God's word is on this subject. I love the beautiful simplicity of God's word. God made Adam. He made a beautiful paradise, made a, a very good world, pronounces it very good over and over and over again. He makes man in the garden and gives him one command, Genesis 2, 16. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Think about how simple that is. Adam, don't eat from that tree. If you do, you're going to die. You will surely die. And what does Satan say to Eve? You will not surely die. He lied to her. Lied to her. Lying is so contrary to the character of God that we're told in the New Testament that on the day of judgment, Revelation 21.8, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire. In the passage before us, we have servants of Satan showing their true colors and all of their devilish pomp. Everyone takes on the attributes of what they worship. We take on the attributes of what we worship. All of us do it. If a person is comfortable lying, perhaps it's because they serve their father, the devil, the father of lies, and his will they want to do when it serves their purpose. Very often, the most loyal servants of Satan feign to be Christians or religious. But when controversies like the one before us in this passage, where issues of ultimate truth come into the foreground, all of a sudden their true attributes will come out and be on full display. They will lie, they will cheat, steal, kill, whatever it takes to protect their idol, they'll do it. And that's exactly what we have here in our passage. So that's the character of Satan's disciples. They take on the attributes of their father, the devil, and are liars. So let's walk through the passage. Look at verse 1 there. Here's Jesus before Pilate, verses 1-7, through the first block of text there. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Okay, stop there. Now, who is the whole body here? This means the whole Sanhedrin. Okay, the whole group takes Jesus to Pilate. Jews were not allowed to carry out a death sentence. And the amount of literature that I found this past week talking about Pilate was pretty extensive and the, the reports about the kind of man he was are actually fairly conflicting. There are some that describe him in very dark terms as inflexible, merciless, cruel, while others see him as practically a saint. But we can see clearly from the Gospels that Pilate was not overly delicate in the way he handled the Jews that he ruled over. It seems clear that he somewhat enjoyed belittling them, and he enjoyed mocking them, and he enjoyed mocking their religion. And the fact that he refers to Jesus over and over again as the king of the Jews, it greatly annoyed everyone in that whole body, in the Sanhedrin. And I really think that's why Pilate kept saying that. Seeing how much it bothered them is, I think, what made Pilate also put it on top of his cross. In three languages. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, king of the Jews, because he wanted to needle them even more. Those people annoyed him. And Pilate tries his best, as you know the narrative, to push the whole thing off on someone else. He, he finds out Jesus is from Galilee and pushes him off on Herod once he finds out he's from Galilee. But not even that works to rid him of this whole mess. But let's go ahead and get to right, right to the lying. Here you have the lying. Look at verse 2. The whole body, the Sanhedrin, this, this court of man so concerned with truth, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, remember the grandiose nighttime trial that we walked through last week? What exactly was it that Jesus had done that caused the high priest to stand up and tear his robes and that pious display of love for God? He has spoken blasphemy, supposedly, right? Blasphemy. That's what made the Sanhedrin think he should die. He affirmed himself to be the son of God and to be the one that they would see one day sitting on the right hand of God. Matthew twenty six sixty five. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Okay, now deserving of death for what? What did the court find him guilty of? Blasphemy. That's it. Remember last week I pointed out to you that they know full well that a Roman procurator is not going to crucify someone for blaspheming some foreign deity. They know Pilate doesn't care about things like that. So what, what options do they have? Make a big display and lie. Make a big hubbub about the whole... Everybody go to Pilate. The whole group, 70 some odd people, bring him and then just lie. They go to Pilate, the whole Sanhedrin goes to Pilate with Jesus in tow, and they boldly lie their pretentious faces off. And we know from John's account that it's, it's comical. John's account of this is much more funny than Luke's because it's clear that on the way there to Pilate, they hadn't thought about what they were going to say yet. Listen to John's account, John eighteen twenty nine. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. You can just see, see Pilate like, are you serious? You guys don't actually have something specific to tell me? Uh, if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him. You know that just annoyed Pilate. He, he says to them in the next verse, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So they're bringing someone to Pilate. They think he should be put to death, but they don't have any accusations to bring against him. But then they come up with verse two. They just lie. Did Jesus forbid them to pay taxes? Did Jesus forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar? No, they're just lying. He didn't forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, Jesus affirmed that they were obligated to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He he affirmed that. Also, Jesus did not say that he was Christ, a king in the sense that they're talking about. He claimed to be the Christ. The Sanhedrin, of course, knows exactly how Pilate will interpret this. Did Jesus claim to be a king? Yes. But in the sense that Pilate will think that he's a king, he will think Jesus is claiming to be a political king in competition with Caesar. And they're purposefully equivocating. They're equivocating and playing to Pilate's sensitivities about such terminology. They are equivocating on the term king, and they know they are. And Jesus repeatedly showed no interest in their desire for a political king. In fact, the word of God records for us, when Jesus sensed that they were about to take him and try to force him to be king, he withdrew from them, John 6.15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The Sanhedrin knows that a more political accusation would carry more weight with a Roman procurator. He had only been charged by them with blasphemy. And they knew a religious charge was not going to matter to someone like Pilate. But what could be more politically sinful than forbidding people to pay their taxes and then claiming to be king in competition with Caesar and his jurisdiction and his empire? These are all lies. They are lying to Pilate. I just want to remind you of something. Satan and his agents and followers even wolves in sheep's clothing that often hide in plain sight in local churches, those individuals have no standards, no morals, and no hesitation in imitating their father's most diabolical attribute, lying. People who lie are satanically evil. Lying in a trial situation like this is even more heinous. Bearing false witness against someone to destroy their life, to destroy their reputation, their ministry, their marriage, their relationship with family members, their business, that is the essence of wickedness. And Pilate noticed their claim about Jesus' supposed claim to be a king immediately. Pilate's ears were attuned to that. He claims to be Christ, a king. And immediately, Pilate, you see verse 3? So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Now, Luke and his account is abbreviating this a lot. John expands it a lot more. Listen to the whole conversation he had with Pilate in John 18. This actually was done in private. Pilate entered the praetorium, that's his house, uh, again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Look at verse 4. You see it? The tail end here of Luke's abbreviated version of this. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This is one of the things that comes up again and again in the accounts here, is that Pilate says in public, in front of everybody, numerous times, he's not done anything wrong. He's not worthy of death. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And yet in just a few hours, he's going to be nailed to a cross. Now, the thing is, this statement from Pilate, I find no guilt in this man. This should have ended the matter. This should have been the end of the story. We know, of course, that Jesus has to die for the sins of his people in a particular way, being cursed and hung on a tree on a cross. But this fact does not exonerate everyone involved here of the terrible guilt Jesus' murder made them all guilty of. Pilate ought to simply have dismissed them and sent them all home. In fact, I was thinking as I was reading this, remember all the stuff I read to you last week about how committed the Sanhedrin was to justice and all the controls and all the things in place to make sure that the guilty were never found guilty and that the innocent will be let go? I think Pilate should have said to them, look, if you can't substantiate what you're saying here, I'm going to have you all crucified instead. I wonder if they would have kept going and kept making false accusations. You know, the Old Testament law. If you bore false witness in a trial like this against someone's life and you were discovered to be lying, you would die. And rightly so. That's the way it should be in every court on this planet. Remember that according to the law of God, you can't do that. You can't lie against someone's life like that without getting in big trouble. Look at verses 5 through 7. But they kept on insisting, even after Pilate said he's not guilty of anything. They kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. To Pilate, this whole situation is a joke that he wants no part of. And he's listening very carefully to everything being said, looking for something, anything to enable him to be rid of this Jesus and all these ornery Jewish religious types. And he hears them say that it all started in Galilee. And immediately Pilate's like, that's the golden ticket right there. Jesus belongs to someone else's jurisdiction. My enemy Herod. And Herod is in town. And he thinks, Let him take care of this mess. He's staying at the Holiday Inn Express in Jerusalem. I know exactly where it is. You all go see Herod. He's from Galilee. Let Herod take care of this problem. So they immediately go over to Herod. That's where the next passage starts. Look at verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Now immediately, every time you see the word Herod, you always have to ask, now which Herod is this? Because you meet four of them in the New Testament. The name Herod is virtually synonymous with opposition to the gospel and opposition to the truth, to righteousness, and to everything that is good in the world. In case you're wondering which Herod this is, we've actually met this guy before in Luke's gospel. This is the Herod who murdered John the Baptist to save face at his dinner party. Remember that narrative? Back in Luke 3, you get an abbreviated summary of it, Luke three nineteen. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him, by John, concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So Herod had imprisoned John the Baptist. And then Luke 9, 7 records, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, talking about Jesus here, heard of everything being done by Jesus, heard about all the miracles and everything, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some, that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to hear him, sought to see him, wanted to see Jesus. Herod really wanted to see Jesus. And we're told in verse 8 exactly why. You see verse 8? Herod was hoping to see some sign performed by him. There can be no doubt, it would have been impressive, it would have been spectacular to see the miracles that Jesus did. Many commentators, historians of of this time point out it's as if miracles were gushing out of him everywhere he went. It was said by historians that he rid the entire area of disease. Leprosy, deafness, blindness, paralysis was gone. Resurrections from the dead. Jesus interrupted funerals and raised the person Back to life, thousands of pounds of food created out of thin air, out of five barley loaves and two fish, water into wine, walking on water, demon exorcisms at a word, every kind of healing of every kind of disease and infirmity imaginable, including leprosy. And sadly, Herod, at this point in his life, he's even more hard-hearted than he's ever been. He's completely enslaved to sin. He's a servant of sin. He has no interest in repenting of the mountain of iniquity that he is sitting on. He had taken his brother Philip's wife. The two of them eloped. But then Herod develops a kind of a thing for her daughter. And Herod is so attracted to her daughter at a party that after she dances for him, Herod promises her anything she wants up to the half of his kingdom. And at the instigation of her mother, Herod ends up destroying the last of God's Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, whom he had already unjustly imprisoned has him beheaded. It's a horrifying scene. Uh, Herod to save face with his nobles at his big party has him beheaded and then his head is brought into the party on a on a dinner platter. Terrible thing. Yeah, Herod, this guy's got some serious issues. Look at verse nine. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. What an opportunity for Herod. Here the only source of salvation from all of his sins, standing right in front of him. And all he wants is a sign. All he wants to see is some cool miracle. And Herod questions him at some length, we're told. And Jesus is totally silent. Jesus does not answer him a word. Has anyone ever sinned against so much light as Herod did? Herod knew and listened to John the Baptist. We know that from the other gospel accounts that he liked to listen to John preach. He liked to hear John preach. And here he has an audience with the incarnate Son of God. And both of these opportunities are entirely wasted on this man, Herod. Herod's sole interest in Jesus is a perverse, contemptuous curiosity. Let's see if you can turn a loaf of bread into 20 loaves of bread in front of me or or something. And he gets no answers from Jesus and he deserved none. And notice what happens in response to Jesus' silence. Look at verse 10 the chief priests and the scribes are standing there accusing him vehemently. It's almost like they're terrified that Herod or Pilate or someone is going to end up letting him go. They're going to miss their opportunity to kill him. And what happens next shows just how deep Herod's depravity could extend. Remember, this same man once protected John the Baptist from the murderous intent of his wife who wanted him killed. Remember that? John was protected by this guy, by Herod. She hated John and wanted him executed for calling out their sin in public. John the Baptist was a bold guy. He stood there and told Herod and told his lover, it is wrong for you to have your brother's wife and she wants him dead. And Herod's like, this guy is righteous. He's godly. I can't let let her do this. Herod wouldn't allow it because he knew that John was a righteous man And Herod liked to hear him preach and Herod's just trying a little bit to turn the volume on his conscience down just a little bit without really letting go of his sin. So many people do that. Just bear in mind the whole time all that's going on, Herod is just as committed and attached to his sin as he ever was. His heart is firmly attached to his sin. No intention of letting it go. No desire to repent of it. It's a strange thing what unregenerate people will sometimes do. To turn the the conscience down a little bit so they can live with themselves. And I remember that. I remember before I knew Christ doing that, taking little steps here and there to to add some hypocrisy to your already destroyed life. That's what Herod's doing, that's all he's he's up to. But now that Jesus, the man about whom Herod had heard about so many miracles and everything, Jesus won't talk to him. And Herod's getting mad. Herod's not happy about this. So what's he do? He lets his true colors fly. You see verse 11? <clears throat> and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous road and sent him back to Pilate. <clears throat> so think about this. Childish mockery. Really? That's all people have left sometimes. They can't answer you. If you're a Christian. They can't answer you. They can't actually prove there are inane accusations against you. So what's left? Make fun of them. Mock them. Even adults do that kind of thing? Yeah. Adult rulers and kings can do that kind of thing? Yes. Mockery. Childish mockery. Sin, idolatry, man's religious nature can cause them to do far, far worse too. Herod had Jesus dressed in a gorgeous robe that we're we're told here. And once again, it's amazing. Jesus just stands by and lets them... Let them dress him up. Just like he silently stood by and offered no resistance to them when they had him blindfolded. Remember that? I mean, you have to stand still. You have to hold still for someone to blindfold you. He didn't fight against them. They blindfolded him and then beat him, punched him. Who who hit you that time? Prophet prophesy to us. The entire group is then sent back to Pilate and Herod. Interestingly enough, and the commentators go wild with this, they're not really sure. He doesn't render any kind of judgment against them. Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod, you judge him. Herod doesn't make any kind of a judgment. Herod just wants to see signs and miracles and wonders. He puts a purple robe on him and sends him back, but doesn't say anything. He doesn't say he's innocent or guilty or anything. And commentators speculate wildly about why. One of them said this, quote, Herod was probably too scared to condemn Jesus to death. His conscience had not allowed him to forget what he had done to another innocent person, John the Baptist. He was filled with haunting superstition, but also he was probably too angry with Jesus to acquit him for his curiosity had not been gratified, end quote. Herod lives in terror in fear of the wrath of God. Remember what Herod thought when he first heard that Jesus had come on the scene, when he first starts hearing about Jesus and first starts hearing about all these mighty miracles? We're told in Mark 6, 14, now King Herod heard of Jesus. For his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. Come back to life with his head reattached, I guess. And to come after him, to come get him. Isn't that amazing? With profound and penetrating insight, John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion said this about unregenerate men and their irrational fears. Quote, You may see now and against how he who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustling of a falling leaf. Whence does this arise? But from the vengeance of divine majesty, which strikes their consciences all the more violently the more they try to flee from it. He's right. So it goes with the loudest. Of God haters, they profess peace and feelings of liberality and and freedom from all this religious stuff, and and I'm safe and all is well, and and there is no God, but the sense of God's presence and judgments haunts their every step. Thus says the Word of God, Luke twenty or Leviticus twenty six thirty six. Listen to Scripture, Leviticus twenty six thirty six, describing curses for disobedience. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword and they shall fall when no one pursues. I think Herod refused to judge Jesus because he was scared to death of him. He was scared to death of him. Herod's in town. Pilate's all excited about it. Let him deal with this. The guy's from Galilee anyway. That's Herod's jurisdiction. You guys go talk to him. He interviews Jesus, it's totally one-sided. Jesus does not say a word. I love his response to Herod. Doesn't say a word to him. And the only thing Pilate gets out of this move is the whole group comes back and Jesus is dressed a little better. Verse 12. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. And here again, don't you wonder why they were enemies? Commentators, you know, spill all kinds of ink about. Why? We're not told why they were enemies. We know nothing of of why, but somehow this makes them friends. It's rather amazing how opposition to the truth, opposition to righteousness, to the Lord, to the Bible, to the gospel, it will unite the most unlikely of people. Not too long ago, the great Christian apologist Greg Bonson debated a Jew, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim cleric, now, Muslims and Jews, as I'm sure you know, have a very long and violent history with each other. It seems that Jacob and Esau were fighting in Rebecca's womb long ago, and those two boys never really have figured out how to get along. But by the end of the three-way debate, the Jew and the Muslim stood up and shook each other's hands and both refused to shake the Christian's hand. Only opposition to Christ and to Christ's followers could actually unite a Jew with a Muslim. Isn't that amazing? So Pilate and Herod, they were enemies, but something about the situation makes them friends. We can both as friends oppose this, oppose Christ. And the last thing I want to share with you is some applications. This passage is filled with application for us today. A few points of application. The first... Is that Satan's agents and their followers and his followers? They lie a lot. Satan's agents, his followers, lie a lot. Lie a lot against Christ's followers, they lie a lot against Christian ministers, against God's Word, against Christ's churches. The group of Jews who ought to have been the most committed to the truth, the court, the Sanhedrin, uh, they were, as they were acting in their very roles as the protectors of, of right and the punishers of wrong, they lied. They lied boldly, repeatedly, clearly. They took on the attributes of the one that they had unknowingly been serving all along, Satan, the father of lies. Remember these people, these Jewish leaders? Jesus told them to their face, you are of your father, the devil, and his will you want to do. And that's why you don't believe what I say. And that's why you want to kill me. When Satan's ministers and his agents cannot stop the work of God, they will very often resort to simple lies. When all else fails, just lie. Make stuff up. When you can't defend your position, just, to, just lie about your opponents. Just attack the character of your opponents. You know who else experienced that a lot? David did. David did. Psalm 3511. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. Remember Elijah. Elijah was a very godly man, a great prophet in Israel. He was a man of integrity who never had anything but God's glory and Israel's good in mind. And how does the wicked, murderous, idolatrous king Ahab describe him? As the troubler of Israel. The troubler of Israel. Who who was really the troubler of Israel? That would be Ahab. Ahab established Baal worship. And caused the damnation of untold thousands of Israelites. Oh, but Elijah, the one calling for repentance, the one calling for the true worship of God, you're a troubler of Israel. Jeremiah, great prophet of God, he was lied about by his enemies constantly who wanted him killed. Jeremiah 38 verse 4, Therefore the princess said to the king, please let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city and all the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. That's the opposite of the truth. What was Jeremiah seeking? The good of the people, the welfare of the people. And Jeremiah's enemies were seeking the harm of the people. The apostles of Jesus Christ were, who were greatly used of God to bring multitudes out of idolatry and sin to salvation in Christ, to liberate people from their servitude to idols, to bring out of darkness and into the glorious light of Christ so many they were lied about. They were lied about everywhere they went, slandered everywhere they went. Acts 17, verse 6. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What were the apostles of Christ out doing in the Great Commission? They were turning it right side back up. They were liberating people from sin, establishing truth in the place of lies. But it was said of them, These guys are upsetting the world. They're turning the world upside down. Acts 24, verse 5 about the Apostle Paul. He said, I love this, we have found this man a real pest. And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Really a real pest? Well, he's only a pest to the enemies of God. You will be a pest to the enemies of God. The enemies of truth, the enemies of righteousness, the enemies of salvation. You see, biblically speaking as Christians, if you are a Christian, if you really are a Christian and are an outspoken Christian, not a not a secret agent Christian, but someone that is known to be a Christian. You cannot engender a neutral response from people. A Christian who never finds themselves in conflict with anyone when it comes to truth, righteousness, and Jesus is either a coward or not a Christian at all. Paul says that true Christians always have, I love the the illustration because it's so vivid, you will always have a certain smell about you. You will smell a certain way. To people second corinthians two fifteen, for we are to god the fragrance of christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death you ever smell death up close it's a horrifying smell but that's what we are to those who are perishing you will stink like death to them and to the other the aroma of life leading to life so i ask what what aroma do you put forth It depends entirely on who's sniffing. People often will see you as a real pest, as a very stinky person, a person who smells like death, or they'll love you and see you as a huge blessing to them and to the world. You see, we can't be somewhere in the middle. We can't be somewhere in the middle, dear congregation. Jesus was lied about, falsely accused constantly, constantly. They said he was a glutton, a drunkard, a Samaritan, a devil, when Jesus did miracles and cast out demons, his enemies were reduced to claiming that he did that by the power of Satan. Jesus is here in our text being flat out lied about. They claim that Jesus forbid them to pay taxes. They claim that Jesus said he was Christ, a political king. He did not in the sense that they're implying to, was a king. He didn't say he was a king in that sense, wanting to overthrow Roman rule or anything like that. They are liars imitating the attributes of their father in hell. Jesus warned his followers that they could be accused and they would be accused of the very same things. Listen closely to God's word, Matthew 10:25. Jesus said, "It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? People will think that you are a devil, that you're a horrible person, you're intolerant, you're a bigot." Really? Because you tell the truth? Yes, indeed. I just want to, in closing, warn you. Nothing is off limits for Christ's enemies to claim for Christ's disciples. No matter how innocent you might be, that will not protect you from horrific levels of lying, hatred, mockery, misrepresentations, even murder. You could be utterly blameless and you will still have to deal at times with things like that. When it happens, I want to encourage you. When you're lied about, when you're slandered, when your good is spoken of as evil, when that happens, bear it patiently and don't fire back because their judgment will come sooner or later. Be still, trust in God. Let God deal with them. He'll deal with them far better than you and I ever could. Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. If our dear Lord dealt with this kind of reckless hate, we, his disciples, can expect nothing less, if we really are his disciples. What is glorious and wonderful to know is that God will deal with them all in this life or the next. And next week, we're going to see Pilate try very hard to release Jesus, but all will take place according to God's predetermined plan, what he destined to occur. As the early church gathered after the resurrection of Christ and they prayed so earnestly together, In Acts 4, 24 to 28, listen to this prayer. Listen to this prayer and ask yourself, do you know Christians that pray like this very often anymore? They said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, With the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Really the greatest evil in the history of mankind, the murder of the Son of God, was predestined by God to occur? Yes, indeed. They did exactly what God had determined would be done. And bless his holy name, that what God determined to be done was done, was finished there at the cross, as Jesus uttered his last words before he died and gave up his spirit, it is finished. Isn't it glorious to know? That's why we can have assurance. That's the reason we can know we have eternal life. It is finished. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this great passage, for all that we have gained from it. And uh, your word is, is infinite. It's glorious. And there's always so much more If we look carefully, if we study it carefully and slowly and dig into the details, and we are such a blessed people to be able to hear the gospel, uh, to be able to hear about Jesus and what he did to save sinners from their sins. Help us not to be afraid when we're slandered, when our good is spoken of as evil, when we're lied about, as Jesus said we would be. But help us to remember, blessed are you when they revile you and exclude you and cast out your name as evil for my sake. For your reward will indeed be great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.